like my best junior result was I finished second in my literally my last junior event when I was almost 18. Hit the putt in on the last to win two up on the last and I was like, what What just happened there? And within the space of six weeks was um, fourth in the world on the amateur ranking. Today on the Tournament Code, we are joined by Tim Stewart. Tim has been a professional golfer for 14 years and has played on a variety of tours, including the European Challenge Tour, the Asian Tour, and the Latin America Tour. Before turning professional, Tim won his National Amateur Championship, the Australian Amateur. Tim also competed in the 2009 British Open. Currently, Tim resides in Atlanta, Georgia, and continues to pursue a career in professional golf. Tim, you're 37. You play professional yep. golf. You've been out there a good while. Let's talk about the beginning and just give us a background as to how you started getting into golf. You're from Australia. You lived in Singapore and Malaysia. How does that lead yep. to you playing golf at a young age and then even farther on? Uh, well, my, <clears throat> I guess the thing that probably started was my parents uh were and still are golf psychopaths um in that like if it's on tv they will record the pga tour they'll record the european tour the champions tour the ladies tour and like my dad particularly would like he'd get through all that every week i mean that is a lot of watching golf and like i would come home be like i i can't i can't watch any more golf like this is this is what i'm doing all day like don't keep hitting me with more golf like there's got to be a show on or something anyway so they they you know they were into golf um a lot and when i was a kid growing up in singapore my dad would uh you know take me along to the driving range because it's it, you know it's different it's not like in australia like we kids would go to the beach play football soccer whatever and uh he would drag me along to the driving range with him and so i started there when i was about seven and uh his big thing was there because I was sort of big for my age. The membership at the club that that he had through the company he worked for um, wouldn't let anyone on the course who was under twelve. So he was like, "If I get him hitting it decent, no one's going to ask any questions because he might be ten, but he looks, you know, twelve. So it was just like driving range, driving range, driving range. So I started out like get up there on my first round of golf and just like crush it off the tee and, and have like 16 putts and, you know, <laughs> but no one could see that. Right. So the, the, the people at the club didn't care. And, and uh, yeah, that's really, you know, that was kind of the, the beginning. And I guess sort of without going through the whole life history, um, you know, I started playing my first rounds of golf there. Um, we moved to Malaysia when I was, 10 around 10 and then the first time i broke 90 was actually on the golf course where they used to play that pga tour event at uh it's now tpc kuala lumpur in malaysia um so that was pretty that was kind of it's you know it's interesting and then to come back years later and play the malaysian open there was pretty cool just as a you know nostalgic thing i tend to be a nostalgic person so it was kind of a cool thing to do um yeah we moved back to australia and i was sort of playing junior golf a little bit um joined a club and 
was pretty good, but but growing up over there, wasn't really exposed to the competition um, that much. Like I was always just playing with my parents or their family friends or whatever. And then uh, getting back to Australia and seeing like, wow, there's a lot of competition around. Oh, there's junior tournaments and kind of seeing that around, you know, much like here where there, there's actual pathways, um, started to get into it a bit more and kind of realized, wow, I actually probably need to work harder at this if I want to be better because just playing socially with my parents and their friends is not really doing it for me. And uh, then as, as time went on, um, yeah, would get to the golf course in the afternoon after school and practice. And one of my now best friends, he joined the club at the same time and we kind of through our whole careers would bounce off each other and he started showing up before school. So I was like, well, I've got to show up before school too. So like we had this competition with each other, like who's practicing more and who's going to get to, you know, 10 handicap first, who's going to get to five handicap and that kind of thing. And um, we're still just as competitive to this day. Like it, he he's now a teaching pro in Australia but we'll go out and play and he finds game that like he hasn't seen for years because it's like at any cost, like I can't lose. It's, uh, it's always good fun. <laughs> that is awesome. And you mentioned, uh, you're super competitive. Uh, and you also said you were big for your age and you're still big. Now you're six, six two thirty, absolute unit. And you played sports rugby. I think what a few others, what, led you to say hey i'm gonna golf is the sport that i want to focus on um it's a good question i think i um i don't even really know where it happened or one specific moment um it just got to a point where it's like i you know i want to i'd sit there and watch you know the pga tour and the majors with my my dad and and it's like I, you know i want to do that i want to do that and how much of it was influenced by you know him obviously he loved it and and so that was probably a big factor and then I just really got to know the game and enjoy the game and I really uh I don't know as a sort of segue I guess the uh the game of golf I think probably taught me a lot more than any kind of education did you know having sort of done both but you know golf really puts things in perspective about how life what life can do to you and, and, uh, you know, it helps you deal with some of that stuff too. So you were talked about playing junior golf in Australia. You obviously yeah. turned professional at some point. What did the transition look like from, you know, amateur golf into professional? When did you turn pro? So my pathway, I guess a little different, very different to a lot, a lot of guys over here. Um, and probably still even different to a lot of the Aussie guys. Um, the, the, college sports is not nearly what it is here like in australia it's there's not really a college sports um they do like a university games thing but it's kind of more of a side note um you know extracurricular at university rather than this is a great way to get an education paid for type of situation you know and so when it got to the end of high school wasn't doing that much with my golf like i was I always felt like I was a great player. I would have some good rounds and then go to tournaments and kind of, you know, finish 20th, finish 15th, whatever. Nothing really that great. Um, but my best junior result was I finished second in my, literally my last junior event when I was almost 18. And so I sort of was like, oh, well, you know, maybe it's just not going to happen. 
right? Like you work and work and work. It's like at some point you got to make a choice. And so I, I got into doing hospitality management and I did a diploma at a technical college in Australia. And at the same time, I was still practicing. And about two weeks before that, that college finished, and, and obviously I'd been working on my game and playing some regional events and had some top tens and things like that. And then sort of out of nowhere, I guess, but I won the Australian Amateur at the in april 20 2006 and that was like like playing the tournament i beat because uh, it's its format is like the us open where there's a stroke play and then they go into the match play and i beat four guys on the national team and everyone's like, like who is this person and i was like who is this person right i'm just like every match i'm just like i'm gonna lose like just go out there play your best and you know see what happens and got to the end and like hit the putt in on the last to win two up on the last. And I was like, what, what just happened there? Like no idea. And so like that changed everything for me. Cause it was, I honestly, at no point during that tournament even considered that I would win, <laughs> which is bizarre. Cause that's the best mind state, right? You got nothing to lose. And um, from there within the next week, I, I lost in the semi-finals of the New Zealand Amateur and within the space of six weeks was um, fourth in the world on the Amateur rankings from like, you know, kind of nowhere. And that summer over here then came over and played, like I started in the UK, played the St Andrews Lynx Trophy, the British Am, came over and played the Rice Planters Amateur in South Carolina. It was my first event in the US, finished second blew a seven shot lead. <laughs> like, again, just no idea what was going on. Who am I? Finished second in the Eastern Am, Sweet 16 at the Western. Like things which I was like, it was just all of a sudden this wave and I was just trying to play, play, play. And I got this opportunity to play on the national team. And so I played on the Aussie team for about two and a half years, a bit over. And, um, and that was kind of my platform to turning pro because with that shift in 06, then it was like, okay, well, now I'm one of the best ranked amateurs like in the world and I need to get used to that and had a great year in 07, um, lost in the final of the British Am and won a bunch of other big amateur events. Uh, like Riversdale Cup in Australia is a big one for us. It's, the, it's like our Western Am. Um, equivalent Tasmanian Open, Singapore Amateur. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was a big shift in over a two year period, and just got confidence. And then it was like, okay, well, how am I planning on you know making that that step to turn pro? And oh gosh, at a 22, 23 year old kid, where all this has happened, it's starting to think about, okay, well, how do I you know I need to get my playing resume into a point where it's attractive to endorsements and people who want to throw some money behind me because, you know, I don't come from wealthy family. It's finding sponsorship in Australia is a challenge. So it was more, you know, based over in the US. So I had a management company who were hanging around and, and trying to, you know, do it all that way. And, uh, yeah, so it was, um, Looking back, I was, I wish I had some of these gray hairs that I have now, <laughs> but such is the nature of the, uh, 
of life and the experience. And um, I ended up turning pro. I looked at what I wanted to do as an amateur and I turned pro in 2008. And that was only because that was the year the Eisenhower Trophy was being played. And there's another tournament called the, the Sir Michael Banalek Trophy, which is Europe versus Asia Pacific. So that's like the closest thing we have to a Walker Cup. So they played that at Valderrama in Spain in 2008, which was like incredible. And then played the World Amateur, which was in Australia. So represent, you know, your country at the highest level and then basically turn pro straight after that. It was kind of my fairy tale kind of looking back. I mean, it was, I wouldn't give the experience back, but I think I probably may have been better off turning pro in 2007. You know, the, the amateur career carries lots of prestige and it's great and, and I have all those things and those memories. But in terms of the business of professional golf, like you can't get in it soon enough. <laughs> you talked a little bit about being on that uh, national team yep. in Australia. And a lot of people in the U.S. aren't really um, aware of how that whole process works. Talk a little bit about how a national team works, what tournaments you played in, uh, different ways they supported you guys and just how that whole process works. So the, the national team at that time, I was kind of right in a transition period. Uh, at that time, there was still the Australian Golf Union and like the ladies amateur golf body. They were working on how do we amalgamate and, you know, things go slow when it's at that kind of level in golf typically. And uh, so, so from my experience, the first part of my time on the national team was the old system and then the last part was sort of the, the newer system as it was in its infancy where it was all golf australia and they would they would pay our expenses to go to all of like the national qualifying events so there's probably a dozen events through the year um like four round tournaments where they're inviting international players and you know, like the Australian Amateur or the Riversdale Cup. And they used to have one called the Lake Macquarie International, which was just north of Sydney. And, you know, the English team would come and lots of European teams would come out. Um, the Canadian team would come. And so it's just a, you know, a big war-round tournament, right? And because we weren't kind of, uh, most of the big events here all through the summer, because that's when everyone's off college, high school, that sort of thing. But for us, it was, you know, it's just when it is like if you're at uni, you just have to take time off and do it because this is when it's when the club wants to have it and you go and do it and they do their best at trying to coordinate where there's runs of tournaments together. But we'd be playing those sort of through the year. Um, and then amongst that, the the golfing body would would select teams to go to other national amateurs in the region. So like the Malaysian amateur, Singapore amateur. Um, and various other through Asia Pacific, some in Europe, um, some in South America. So like I played, I was sent on, it was actually the, the first Asian amateur championship in 2006, uh, 2007. I don't know. It might be one of those years, six or seven, not sure exactly, but, um, we played at Mission Hills in China and it was the first one. And they were talked about all the plans, what they wanted to do and, now looking at the Asian amateur, it's like, wow, now there's a spot at Augusta. So it's, you know, kind of cool to be a part of history. I wish I was part of it a few years later because that would have been nice to have that 
to play for. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, it was uh, it was a really good way to learn how to travel and play. Um, you know, we're getting on 10, 12 hour flights to go play amateur golf in the early twenties. It's not something that, that a lot of people get exposed to. So it was kind of a good, good way to, to, you know, land, be on another continent and go, okay, what's it, let, let's, let's go play and, you know, have a lot of fun along the way because you're traveling with all the same guys, you're all in your early twenties and just having a, having a blast and playing golf. It's great. That's a cool experience to be part of, especially getting surrounded by a bunch of guys that good. You talked about in an interview one time that you've learned how to score well when you're not playing your best. Um, and there are days where you just can't hit it, but you still get it in the hole. And I want to relate that back to that run that you had where you won the Australian AM, as you said, finished running up at the Rice Planters, Eastern AM, uh, Dunes Medal, Gowani Open, all within the span of a year. You go from essentially not being a known commodity to being ranked. And someone might look at that or might they might look at the Australian AM uh, and say, oh, you know, he had a good time here. Like he just played out of his mind right there. But to do that in event after event after event, and then over a series of events, you can't you can't bring your A plus stuff every day. You can't have luck on your side every round. So there's more to it than that. And you learn really fast uh, as far as all that goes that you're not going to be out there with your best. So how did you learn that in such a condensed period of time? Um. I think learning's a funny thing, in particular when it comes to golf. I think you learn things along the way at a steady pace, and I think golf has a way of paying those out in dividends that that doesn't seem apparent. You know, it could be years, and then all of a sudden it's just like, oh, well, let's just give him a little run. You know, not not to 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 personify it too much, but. Um, I, I remember consciously thinking, you know, because people asked me that that year, you know, I was talking to reporters and, and they're like, you know, what, where did this, you know, you were doing this and now you're playing. I said, honestly, I'm just trying to stay out of my own way. Like right now I'm just tearing the ball up and I'm hitting it and I'm trying to not overthink it too much because, you know, I'm just out there playing as, as best I can. I'm trying to plan my, round, plan my way around the golf course, hit the shots um, and whole parts like and and I really just even in my own mind was just trying to think just keep riding the wave as long as you can like because it's the nature of waves and <laughs> which on one hand is you know it was a great way to stay out of my own way but on the other side when you know when I started not playing quite as well then your mind goes into this phase of oh maybe this is the back end of the wave you know so how do you how do you get to a point where your waves are only positive? That's that's the hard part. <laughs> do you have an answer for that hard part? Um, I do. I do. Um, I think, I guess it's more of a philosophy in that, you know, when I'm hitting it well, like golf's easy. Like same, everyone's had those days, right? So my goal is, you know, I, I just want to really always work on how can I play ugly? Like, when it's when it's going pear shaped, what what can I do to know I can get it around ugly? So like at that time, I really had a good system where 
you know, my swing at, at full speed didn't didn't feel like I had much control. I had these like knockdown shots that were just super reliable. And I carried this one iron that like this one iron that I hit. It's in a ping I2, the old classic thing. And the thing I loved about it was it had one shot. It's like its weakness was it had one shot, but its strength was also it just had that one shot. It's just this flat draw that goes like 15 feet in the air. So hitting it into a par five over water was kind of useless. But off a tee, you know, when I couldn't keep things in control, I just hit that and always, you know, just, just go back to, okay, how do I just put it in play and keep things simple? And that sort of mitigated some of that bad stuff. So kind of learning how to play ugly, then eventually you kind of get through that barrier and hit some good shots, make a few birdies and, and you can end up saving your day and then you're out there the next day and feeling better about things. That's a good philosophy to have. And it's something that obviously you get when you have that experience, but when you're making uh, this type of progression and when you were going through that type of progression, you had a part-time swing coach and a video camera. And that was about it from my understanding. What was, we've talked about the mental side, but the technical side is something that when you look at your golf swing, it's a pretty golf swing. And as far as the actual effects of what's going on at the ball, there's a lot of good things happening there. How did you get to that point and how much do you work on that? And how much did you work on that? Oh, it's funny, you know, perspective is an interesting thing. Uh, when I look at my own swing, I just go like, oh, I just want to throw up. Like it's, you just, we're all our own worst critics. Right. And, uh, there's certain things in my golf swing I've been working at for a decade or more. And, that's all I'll ever see, you know, so it's, and, and high definition cameras don't help because I just, I can get in there even closer and like, that's not where I want it to be. Why is that there? But, um, I've always, well, it's, I've always had trust issues, particularly when it comes to my game. Um, my dad taught me until I was off about a seven handicap and it just got to the point where his, he just didn't have the knowledge to keep me moving forwards. And went to a few different coaches, tried different things, and um, didn't didn't really feel like that was how I wanted to play, and and that probably you know didn't didn't help me. And me being me, you know, I knew everything. You know, what do they know that I don't know? Like one thing I would say, what well, probably the best piece of advice I could give anyone else is. <laughs> You know everything until you're about 30 and then you realize, shit, I'm never going to know everything, but now I want to know more. That's, excuse the language. Um, no, no, you're good. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's funny, you know, like my dad would say this to me. So I was just like, oh, you know, I just never say anything. Right. I can't help. I can't give you the advice. And, and it's exactly like I knew everything. So it's just, you know, call that life experience. But um as it related to my golf, I was very protective about any adjustments that I wanted to make. And even getting into the national team, you know, they had this requirement like, oh, we want to see your stat books and things like that. And I've never been one to back down from an argument. Um, so I, I was like, well, you know, I got here doing it this way and now you want me to do it a different way. You know, pretty sure my way is working just fine. So no. <laughs> <laughs> What were some of the specific things they wanted you to change? Um, 
it wasn't so much mechanics, but they wanted they wanted me to. Um, I had I was very fortunate at that time, and I regret not using it more to have access to a guy named Ramsey McMaster, who who in a lot of ways was kind of the pioneer for um, golf fitness. You know, like those spiky balls, the purple spiky balls you see, like that that was his. He got he bought some from a kid's store and was like, I need someone to make this but firmer because this isn't enough, right? So I've still got two of the originals with me that he gave me. Um, you should definitely look him up. He passed away, unfortunately, in 2011, I think. But, I mean, you go talk like, you know, I've done the TPI training and, and they talk about him and he, uh, I was very fortunate to have access to that. But side note, um, you know, they wanted me to be a lot more involved in, in that, getting my body right, like doing all the right things. Hindsight, me sitting here looking back was like, what an idiot. Like they were trying to get me to do all the right things and I was way too stubborn to listen to anybody else at that point. And um, so, yeah, there was the physical side and they definitely wanted me to use uh, a statistics program that I found a little bit clunky and um, just all their checks and balances because as an organization, like now I understand like they needed a way to measure the performance other than just score. And for me, I was just measuring everything on score and feel. And which is fine in your 20s, right? You can pretty much do whatever you want. As you get older, it's like, okay, well, now my, my back's sore and my wrist is sore. And it's like, you know, well, that's because you do this and this and the other thing in your golf swing and you probably didn't, you know, stretch that and work on these areas that we're trying to work on. So it's, uh, you know, it's, you learn from your errors. So I, I, I wish I was a little less headstrong, but at the same time, that put me where I was in a way, you know? So this statistics program that they wanted to use, I guess it was long before uh, strokes gained and everything like that. Well, so yeah. was it just basically number of putts, uh, greens hit, up and downs? They were actually, I would say in Australia, they were pretty ahead in terms of keeping better metrics, you know, really proximity from the hole. And a program that developed off the back of that was with one called Shots to Hole. I'm not sure if you've heard of it or used it. It's not really a strokes gained app, um, but it's totally web-based, fills out really quick. Um, but everything is like, you know, it's all relating from the hole backwards. So how far, what club, all that sort of thing. And with that, you you can work out your own strokes gained per se. Um, I've always, I mean, I've, I still kind of find the strokes gained, it, it gets to be, there's a little bit like, well, what's the baseline? You know, because there has to be like even in the apps, like there's a certain assumption like this is where the baseline is. Obviously, on the tour, or the, the the big tour, PGA Tour, they they're keeping the stats all through, you know, shots to hole, and so then they can say, okay, well, this is what the winner did, and then everyone can work off the back of that, or what's the average top ten percent of each stat and things like that. So, you know, data, data is the it's it's the commodity of today that's the big thing that that does everything so this is at least i can benchmark myself so i can say okay well you know where am i losing on what i normally do so i can go into my rounds and go okay what's my best third that i've played and then 
what did I do well today and what did I not do well or what over this period or what, you know, when I put this new driver in, how's my driving been for this six months compared to the previous six months? A lot more information based, which is very different to how I was in my 20s. <laughs> but as you've gotten older, I imagine, as you said, you've gotten more uh, at least stats focused. And I know when it comes to the golf swing, you're TrackMan level two certified. So, you know, uh, more as far as that data at impact, what was, what led you to that? Was it, you know, I'm getting older. Uh, I need to find ways to improve things as efficiently as possible. And what do you do now to pay attention to those types of stats? So like in terms of trackman data or on-course stats? In both cases. Okay. Um, so I guess that I probably need to fill in a, a bit of the history blanks there. And, and uh, so I, I played for six years through to 2014 and then had like my dad was pretty sick, broke up for a long time girlfriend, run out of money. I'm just like, I, I can't do this right now. I can't. I need to stop. So I, I ended up stopping and I did my PGA bridging course, which in Australia to become a PGA pro, it's a three year apprenticeship. And, but which is, you know, three years worth of assignments as well as you got to work in the pro shop 40 hours a week, that sort of thing. And there's a playing test, but the bridging program is for guys or girls who have played on a major tour for at least five years, which I qualified for. So I didn't have to do the playing side they basically give you those three years worth of assignments you've got to finish in a year. And then you do like 200 hours of various different disciplines in the golf business. And then you get your qualification. So that was, that was good. It kind of gave me something else to do. And I was working, doing various, I was greenkeeping for a while there just to try and, you know, while this is all going on. Um, and having finished that, went into an assistant pro role and started doing some teaching realized working under a boss didn't suit me no surprise there uh and got a really good role at a nice country club in sydney called terry hills country club and i was the head teaching pro there and they very kindly you know bought a track man and i i'd already done the qualification at that point and started implementing into my lessons and you know two years went by and I found myself being quite bored, giving the same lesson, still feeling that competitive desire. And so often I'd find myself saying things to my students, you know, like, you know, you've got to, you can't fix what you can't measure. You can't do, you know, just, and thinking what a hypocrite, because if you'd have done this when you were playing, you wouldn't be standing here teaching right now. So when I decided to, quit and get back playing I told myself I'm not going to do what I did before I'm going to I'm going to measure things I'm not going to use emotions to make choices I'm going to use information and the more information I can get the better effectively and that's why I've been a lot more diligent about my stats like part of my my work day you know is my pre-round warm-up and then like before I get to the course and then you know, how I warm up, even how I warm up is written down. Like I warm up with the same clubs, the same process, the same number of balls. Like how do I make this a routine? Not like, 
oh, what's, let's crack the knuckles and let's see how it goes. You know, I want to make this like, I don't have to think. You know, like when people go to work, then you wake up, you make yourself coffee, get in the car, go there, you've got your work. Like you've got a routine and, you know, in most people's cases, someone else is deciding what that is to a degree, you know. But for me, for a golfer or, you know, any sports person who, who effectively runs their own business, it's like, well, you know, what am I going to do today? Wake up, oh, it looks sunny. Maybe I'll go to, it's like, no, like have a, how do I make this autopilot a little bit? Because if you're always making those choices, you make good and bad. But if you've got, if you've figured out a, a recipe and that recipe gets you in the wheelhouse of where you need to be, then, you know, you might change how you warm up because you feel like, I just don't feel like I'm loose. It's like, maybe I need to spend an extra five minutes on, you know, X, Y, Z in my, my pre warm up, or I need to hit a few extra bunker shots to make sure that, you know, that feels better or trying to get that recipe down and, and being a little more that way helps for me, helps take the emotion away, which, you know, it's not really the, the emotion is, um, as someone who I would describe myself as a, as a passionate and emotional person. But people who play golf with me would say that, uh, you know, I'm just relaxed and chill. And it's like, that that's the exterior. Because if I let that cat out of the bag, like, she's not coming back in. If that makes sense. <laughs> Do you keep a practice journal or something of that nature? Uh, I have. But I have, again, not been as diligent with that. Um, as I could be like, I go through, I went through, I was going through my diaries the other day and there's, you know, several months where I've, I've written down what I worked on today, what was good, what was bad. And even what, what my plan for the day was in my practice. Um, it's very helpful and I should be better about that, <laughs> I don't know. but you know, life and I am still who I am. So it's, it's. It's hard because I want to, you know, trying to do everything. Um, I would love to, and you know, sometimes life gets in the way, or it could be someone stops for a chat, and by the time you get home, I got to cook dinner, and then oh, I forgot to do that yesterday, but I got to get to practice today, and you know, it, they're just excuses at the end of the day. But um, I, I do think a practice journal is very helpful for sure. One question I had was regarding your warm-up routine. You have this yes. rigorous process that it seems that you go through as far as making sure you're in the same spot uh, all the time and help conditioning yourself. So when you end up in these pressure-filled circumstances, they're not unfamiliar to you. And the first part of that comes with having your body in a good place. What exactly does your pre-round Warm up look like the one before you get to the course, and then when you get to the course, how have you structured your warm up on the range, on the putting green, etc., to get that same feel? Um, so, for me, uh, I have a framework I want to go through, like physically. So that might change, like the, the process for the week, in terms of where things are done, like whether it's in the hotel room at the golf course it's going to change depending on like how far am I staying from the course? You know, are there, is there a bus this week? Is there a locker room? Does it have facilities to be able to stretch? So what are they, you know, what's there? So 
you know, when you turn up to the course on a Monday or sometimes a Tuesday for a tournament, some of that, you know, call it due diligence, you go for a practice round, but also what's here? Like, do I have a locker? Do I have, you know, is there a good place I can stretch? Because playing some tournaments like in the Philippines, there's no driving range. There's just a chipping green and a practice bunker. So it's like, okay, how do I, you know, so I effectively came up with like, you know, seven or eight different um, routines that can cater for some of those different circumstances. So rather than be surprised, it's like, I've got a plan for that. You know, like, so for example, with the, and, and I'll, I'll get into my, my routine, but if you ever get to a place and you're short on time or there's no range, the bunker is the first place to go. That is hands down the best place to warm up your body to go play golf. Um, understanding that the driving range is not a place where you always do the same thing. Like when you go to warm up before you play, you're there to warm up, not hit perfect shots. So delineating that difference, you know, most people go to the range to help their mind. Like, oh, okay, I'm hitting it pure. That that feels good. Now I'm ready to go play. It's like, but how often do you take that to the golf course? Like, it's rare, if anything. It's like, so what am I trying to do with the driving range in my warm up? Is to warm up my body, ready it for play, regardless of the of sort of the result. So I would um, to get back to you. Ideally. Let's say I use the scenario of golf course has a good locker in, there's somewhere to stretch, has a range. I would want to show up there two hours before and I would do my like various stretches, foam rolling. For me, it's important to loosen up my hips, my thoracic, do like a five minute little core thing, not to get tired, just to create alertness, um, glutes kind of get all of those things where, you know, it's kind of a light sweat effectively. And from there, I would, again, depending on the tea time, if I was before sort of 9 a.m. or after 12 p.m. of the tea time, I would want to have a quick bite to eat. And then I want to be on the range. Well, no, correction. I want to be on the putting green 50 minutes before I tee off again, depending on how long the walk is to the tee. So I will add X amount of time, depending on how far that walk is from the driving range to the putting green. And why I say start in the putting green is I want to go through my putting routine, which is always going to involve, I'll start with, you know, probably 10 minutes, maybe a bit less of mechanical work. So I'll typically just put down my alignment stick on a straight part and just kind of go over some of my technical feels, um, use the mirror for a little while, like that aspect of it can adjust depending on what I'm working on. But it's kind of like, this is my technical refresher period. Then that's done, throw that back in the bag. And then I will hit um, 12 short putts, three to five feet, depending on confidence levels. Like if I feel like the greens are tricky or I'm not putting that great, I will come into three feet and do it on four points of the hole. So like, you know, using the clock, 12, three, six, nine, so that I'm all breaks, all speeds, that kind of thing. And the goal of that is get used to the ball going in the hole. This is a straight out of the Bob Rotella playbook, you know, get used to listening to the ball go in the hole. 
Um, then I will do speed drills. So find a 20 to 30 foot putt without much break. And even if that's just putting a tee between two points, because in a lot of cases, you know, there's 30 guys on the putting green, there's no holes there. So I'll just walk to like a fresh piece of green and just put two tees between those two points and putt three balls each back and forth. Because again, my theory being that if I'm not dealing with break, I'm just trying to calibrate my brain to the speed. So if I can judge the speed in both directions on the same putt, my speed's done, checked, like tick that off. You know what I mean? So rather than just kind of whack them around the green and trust your eyes, it's like you're actually dealing with fixed, a few more fixed variables. And then after that, I will hit sort of six to eight foot right to left putt and left to right putt with full routine. And once that's done, I'll put it in the bag and walk to the range. And then when I get to the range, same idea going through various clubs of like, I'll start with my, usually my gap wedge. This, this <laughs> if it's cold, I'll start with a gap wedge, go to an eight iron, then a five iron. And if it's warm and my body's feeling good, I'll start with a pitching wedge, go to a seven and then a four iron. <laughs> Only reason being having some variety is I don't want to wear out the same club. You know, like everyone warms up with like an eight iron or whatever. Well, eventually the eight iron looks like, you know, it's been hit that a lot and everything gets else messed up. Exactly. Exactly. So trying to, I do try to rotate what I, what I warm up with. And then in practice, I'll practice with something that I don't warm up with. That makes sense to try and spread the load a little bit. Um, just to, you know, preserve the life of the set. Uh, and then typically, you know, I'll hit, I'll probably hit a lot of the wedges just to, until I feel like, you know, starting with pitch shots and then getting longer and longer till I feel like I'm making full swings. Then the same with the, you know, the seven or the eight iron, get to the four or five iron, hit a few of those. And then I might hit three of my driving irons. If I, with the woods, I might hit two or three, but if I like if I hit two really good ones, let's put it back in the bag and driver anywhere between one and five. But like there's been times I've put the driver in, make a swing, pump it, and just put the head cover back on. Because it's like, what am I here to do? To stand here and watch myself hit all these great drives and tell everyone how good I am, or am I here to just get my body warm and feel comfortable? So like if I can stand up there and slot driver, it's like, well. That's it. I'm good. I'm ready to roll. And then I'll finish with just hitting like some chip shots and some flop shots um, just on the range, like trying to pick a random target on the, on the turf there just to kind of get a feel for the chipping. And if there is a chipping green close to the tee, I'll try to hit two or three minutes of chips before going to the tee. But that one, that's like an optional one, if that makes sense. It's you know, because I, I feel like I try and do that on the range already because in some cases, like, it's at the opposite end. But I've gotten pretty pretty diligent with sticking to that. And sometimes it can be a bit tricky because the range is typically way further away than the putting green. But the benefits of finishing on the range, finishing your warm-up on the range, like, it just logically makes so much more sense to me. You know, and you see it, you see it with... The, like all the experienced guys I've ever played with have done it that way. 
but we we grow up with this go straight to the range hit balls then hit putts then play because it's kind of it's a distance progression but the logical progression is not like that right it's like why i should just hit shots and then go straight to the tee because my putting is like you're used to having big gaps between your putting why am i going to take huge gaps between the hitting i get on the first tee and i'm cold again <laughs> so yeah just trying to put logical structure behind things that's a smart way to do it and i want to touch on two things one you had talked about the bunker being the best place to warm up uh especially if you didn't have a range could you dive into that a little and then after that i was interested you talked about how you try not to wear too much of your clubs uh, use them over and over and develop that wear on them how often are you replacing clubs and it is a vary by club uh so i'll start with the bunker um the bunker is a great place to warm up because if you think about if we go back to the principle of okay my why do i you know in my warm-up what is my goal it is to warm up right so what am i warming up you know movement of the body so the bunker gives you the ability to you know obviously you, you tend to be a little more squatted down so you're going to be loading into the glutes a bit better there's a decent amount of rotation because you know your average bunker shot sort of like a 60 70 yard shot effectively um so there's a there's a lot of movement of the body you're feeling that like strike on the ground so it's in terms of what the body's feeling there's a lot of similarities there so like you go hit 10 or 15 bunker shots you probably work up a little bit of a sweat like and and for me particularly like i've always struggled with losing the club underneath and then kind of sort of flipping it over and hitting it right to left so i work really hard on trying to keep the club outside my hands and and you know work it left as is the popular terminology um which the bunker is all about that right so for a lot of the feels that i've used um for my game i've found it very very helpful um working on those particular feels but in terms of just dynamic body warm-up the bunker gives you everything the range gives you it just doesn't give you the visual of hitting that you know pretty iron shot or whatever but hitting a pure bunker shot is pretty satisfying too <laughs> and um with regards to the irons how how often am i replacing <laughs> as little as possible um obviously you know the financial standpoint um but even even when i was under contract with clubs once i found what i liked um i'm very reluctant to take that out and i mean it'd have to be i remember i was using a lob wedge for a while there that it was concaved in the face and the pro my golf club was like what are you doing like how are you still using this like well i don't want to change they've got a new model and it's different you know like it's the hard part the golf business is like turning over all these new clubs and and the new model may not be the same as the old model it's like when i when i find one i like i should just buy like 10 of them and then just put them in the <laughs> cupboard in storage like so that I, you know because there's so much that's changing around you all the time anyway when you find what you like it's you know it's nice to have that but in terms of where i mean obviously the wedges go you know within a year you start losing some of that performance um mm -hmm. at probably even less than that but within a year like 
probably in, in good shape on a full season. Um, Irons probably not so much. I mean, you see a guy like Steve Stricker, he's still using those, was it like 718s or I forget exactly, well, 714. Daniel Berger's still playing the tailor-made uh, MCs, I think, the ones that had that uh, hexagon screw in the back. Yep, yep, exactly. And I think they must have been for like 2014 or something, right? Like 13. I had those clubs, so that was 2012 maybe even. There you go. So... Adam Scott was still using the the six ninety oh. MBs, and he had uh, he had a set of those six eighties because because he's always I mean he's been titleist like since he was in college really, and and uh, I remember seeing a set of his he had like the this they they said 690 on them but they're like the what what became the 680s and then they did like the 660s and things all variations on it but for him like no he hasn't changed like it's yeah so you know looking at like looking at a lot of the trackman stuff um explains a lot of the rationale behind that too in that you know once you get up to like an 8 iron and above it's not really making huge difference although i would say i did use one set of clubs for five and a half years um they're a max fly australian blade like love those things would i'd still be using them if i could but they had u-shaped grooves on them and i found that as they got more and more and more worn i would get flyers from less and less grass like if, if i was playing on a rye grass where the fairway was just like you know, just a little longer, I could potentially catch a flyer. And I was like, I can't, I can't keep playing like this. But maybe that was technique too. I don't know. You know, looking back, it'd be interesting to see. But uh, they were illegal anyway, so I had to stop using that when that rule changed. <laughs> you bring up an interesting point with, you know, playing on ryegrass. You've traveled so much throughout your career playing on all types of different courses. Um, what do you do to try to prepare for different conditions, um, different grasses, uh, all of the oh, above? Good question. Um, mostly it's just mileage. <laughs> uh, I would say the putting, I, for a while there, I used to travel with two putters. And if I came to a course, because a lot of the Asian tour events, you're jumping from like, you know, like Korea to India, down to Malaysia, Singapore. So, you know, you go up to Korea and some, like one of the courses we played there for the, actually, I think it's where they played one of the PGA tour events, but it's, um, Hazley golf club. And it's, uh, pure, like bent grass everywhere. Just immaculate. Amazing. And then the next week we go to Taiwan to play it. A course called Tamsui, which is Taiwan Country Club, and the greens are rolling at like seven. Like so, it's a significant amount of variety. So I would often travel with two putters, um, one more for Bermuda style greens or really slow greens, and the other one for more what I was used to in, in like like my home course in Australia would have pretty quick greens most of the time. Um, just because I didn't want to kind of have to make the changes um, in my stroke at that point. Looking back, was that right? Was that wrong? 
uh, I think it was right, but I also think it was kind of a band-aid for a bigger issue that I didn't recognize at the time. Um, I think now, like now I use quite a heavy putter, but I don't have an issue with it on fast greens. Does that make sense? Um, but in terms of getting used to different grasses and things like that, um, really it's just, yeah, you just have to get, you have to play on it, see how the ball reacts. And then I think the real skill is being open to the adjustment of, of, you know, what it's like where you are. And I remember seeing this, I played with James Nitties many years ago. I think I was still an amateur even. Uh, he's an Aussie golfer, lives out in Texas, but, you know, he got on the PGA Tour a few times. And, and I played with him and I noticed he was walking off all his iron shots in the practice round. Like he would figure out how far that went and just kind of taking note of, oh, I'm in this place playing my practice round. I had, you know, 170 and, and hit my 8-iron or hit my 7-iron or whatever, and and it flew 175 and just making a note of that. And, like, do you start to see a trend of things? And having that kind of mentality where it's just paying attention to how far is the ball going for me in these conditions off this turf, it kind of gives you a baseline you can take then to the tournament. Um so I think that the, the biggest skill is that, you know, I relate it back to amateur golf where someone's like, oh, you know, the sixth hole at Druid Hills, I always hit this club. That's just what I hit on this hole. Like, yeah, but it's 40 degrees in January and then it's 110 in August. Like the physics doesn't care what club you hit. Like you need to understand that it's going to be different. And so, you know, sort of trying to be the opposite of that mentality and actually be open to being able to adjust on the conditions of that particular day or golf course or even, you know, altitude and all that sort of stuff. You bring up something that's important. You talked about switching grasses and switching putters and how it was different when you're playing in over in Asia and something that we haven't talked a lot about with you today. You're such a wealth of knowledge. We've got so many places we can go with it, but one of them was, how much you've played. I'll do a quick run through 2009. You played uh, the Asian tour, 2010, mainly on the European challenge tour, 2011, Asian tour, 12, 13, Asian tour, 14, China series, 14 to 17. You took that break. Uh, 2017, you had one start on the Australasia tour, uh, 2018, 2019 played in that on that tour as well. And then 20, 22 you played on the latin america tour that's a lot of traveling around that's a lot of jumping around and it's a lot to have to manage how have you learned one to manage all that travel and two you're playing these different courses what do you do for your practice rounds to help you be prepared for a course coming up to it especially given that conditions are changing week to week and country to country um the good thing about golf is it doesn't matter where you go, you still got a golf course, right? So you, the, the consistent part is, okay, there's there's 18 holes there and I need to figure out the best way to get around for me. Um, so I'll, I'll try and start it in, in order of like, okay, so the travel, I mean, travel's not that hard, it's taxing, if that makes sense. Like, I, 
you know, living in the States now, um, everyone always asks me like, oh, how do you deal with those long flights? It's like, what's well, easy? I pay my money and I get on. You know, like it's it's what I like to call a roller coaster mentality. It's like I'm I'm not the greatest with heights and roller coasters kind of freak me out, but I really like I mean I love cars, I love going fast, and I always enjoy roller coasters. So my roller coaster mentality is look, all I gotta do is go get on, get bolted in, and then I'm gonna be way too embarrassed to to get off. No one's like at that point I'm in, right? So if, if all I do to my body is just get me onto that seat get me bolted in the rest like is not up to me anymore and hopefully i'm doing it somewhere that's safe which in this country fortunately it is <laughs> and um so it's the same with travel it's like i mean look i don't love the you know 17 hour flight from houston to sydney going back to australia or you know i mean too many to count but it's always the same as like look just Maybe have a beer, kind of get get on the plane, sit down, and just turn on the movies and just get through the movies. And then at the other end, I'll be there. And you know, it's it's not that different. Like if you've got to get on a flight, like let's say from you know Atlanta to New York, in some ways I find that way more frustrating because it's like it's just beyond driving because it's you know it's long enough you wouldn't want to drive it, but you still got to deal with all the garbage at the airport, the security and crowded plane and the bin space is full. And it's like, it's kind of the same. It's just, you have a bigger gap and generally you'll have a more comfortable seat because they're bigger jets doing those flights. But the travel side, you know, it's, it's still, okay, how am I getting to the airport? How am I getting like, what flight am I taking? That's booked. Have I booked a hotel? And then, are there taxis around or do I need to rent a car? So it's kind of the same framework, whether it's playing Challenge Tour in Europe or Latin America or flying out to Asia, you know, whatever it may be. Um, trying to not complain about it, if that makes sense. You know, in the same way, if you've got to sit in traffic to go to work, if you every day came home and were like, oh, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it, like you're going to, you're really going to struggle, you know. So getting into a space of just a flight, just get on, get off, and get on with it. Um, in terms of, of you know, how to adjust, jet lag is always the biggest problem I found um, in terms of adjustment, and that's really just got to play through it. No other way, like, you just have to tell your body, well, suck it up, we're going to go out there and we're going to play, and then at some point you're going to get to bed and then I'll, I'll rest the body, I'll give you some rest and then we'll feel, we'll feel good. Um, so, you know, that's the travel side of it. On the playing side, uh, at a, you know, in a practice round, most important thing for me is like, okay, how, what am I going to hit off the tee? You know, what's the driving line? What's the, what's the widest part of the fairway um, weighed up with what's giving me the best scoring opportunity in that like, well, three iron's the widest part of the fairway, but the hole's 450 yards, so that's probably not a great idea either because then I've got to do it again. It's like, whereas if I hit driver, you know, what's the what's that crossover between um, my comfortable places to being assertive but not being stupid? And, and that's typically how I'll try to break the course down. And then it's just, you know, iron shots into greens, trying to figure out how... How is the green broken down? Like, where is, 
Where are there any spots that really just don't bother playing for because the percentages are not in your favor? And I'm trying to sort of map that out in the book. So typically, I'm not that concerned about how I play in a practice round. I see quite often, you know, a lot of guys will hit a bad shot and be like, oh, I got to drop another one to hit a good shot. And nothing like there's nothing wrong with that. You know, it's everyone's comfort level. For, for me personally, I just found. Like, what am I out here to achieve? It's like, I'm not out here to practice. I'm out here to see the golf course. So if I get in on a Monday and I can do that, take care of that part of that work, it's like, all right, well, now I've got a plan. Now Tuesday I'll come out and I'll try and play that plan if I've got that time luxury, you know. If I don't have that time luxury, I've still got a plan. So then I can, if it's Thursday and I get out there, then that's, that's what I'll try and do. Um, and I would say more recently, something I started doing in China was just trying to do nine holes each day because um, practice rounds are typically very, very slow. And after, you know, three, three and a half hours for nine holes, my focus ability starts to drop off quite quickly. So I found if I did it in nine hole blocks, um, I got a lot more consistent information and particularly when it's hot, like in Asia, it's, you know, 100 and 100% humidity. It's like it's just your body's losing so much fluid so fast. It's really hard to stay focused for that long. And uh, and so trying to do it in nine whole blocks, I do. You know, if I might fly in Monday morning, I try and get out for nine in the afternoon, nine Tuesday morning. And then if the opportunity is there to play Wednesday, play nine on Wednesday or play the Pro-Am if, you know, if I was in the Pro-Am, but not trying to take too much out of the tank at the start of the week. That makes sense. It does make sense. And I like your mentality that you have with a lot of these things, which is focusing on getting to the point of what something is for, not focusing on the externalities when it comes to a uh, warm up on the range. It's not about having the best golf golf swing on the range. It's not about hitting the best shots on the range. It's about getting your body ready. When it comes to the putting green, it's about seeing some putts go in and making sure that you have the speed that you need for the week, not holding a bunch of 15-footers or something like that. And when it comes to getting to your practice rounds, it is about focusing on where you need to be for the week and not what score you shoot in your practice round, if you're even keeping score, um, what the shots you're like, the shots that you're hitting out there are like in that, oh no, I hit a bad shot today. That means I'm going to hit a bad shot on Thursday. It's all about uh, compartmentalizing and accepting. If you get, if you get a very super, if you get very superstitious about it, all of a sudden that one bad swing on Tuesday affects your sw <laughs> swing on that hole on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, it can be a lot to take in. And so kind of jumping from that, You've learned a lot over your years, and one of the tournaments you've played in that I'm sure you get asked about a lot, and that is the 2009, uh, you played in the British Open. What was that like? Um, what did you expect it to be like, and what was it like actually being there? I mean, <laughs> that's like, wow, I want to do this every week. <laughs> it's probably the only way I could say it. It's, uh, you imagine, uh, you know, it's just like playing golf in a stadium. Like 
every hole there's you know massive grandstands that line the hole you know and and i've played in a lot of big tournaments you know like singapore open um all the, the Aussie events, you know, and there was some grandstands around, but like typically it's the last few holes. But at the at the Open, it's like one, two, three. Like there's big grandstands everywhere. You know, I was I was lucky enough to be the first group on the second day, the way the ways were split. So I was teeing off at six o'clock, and there's like two thousand people in the grandstand behind me. Like this is insane. So, um, it's a it's a different different experience to a lot of other tournaments but um just just yeah i mean incredible just out there with it's where you want to be like as a kid you're like oh, this is you know to play the british open was was exciting and i think i was nervous for you know i missed the cut there unfortunately but for the those two rounds like i was nervous every hole like the whole day you know but in a good way you know it's like I had a friend of mine who'd played at Birkdale the year before and he said, he's like, look, it, you just go like do all the things you know you're not meant to do, but just go have fun and enjoy it. It's like go hang out on the range, go hang out at the equipment trucks, go hang out in the players' lounge, like just, you know, enjoy it. And I was, I was really glad he gave me that advice because, you know, you never know when it's going to happen again, if it's going to happen again. And... And I was really happy the way the way that you know my family came over, um, and one of my best friends caddied for me. It was it was yeah great experience, unbelievable. I did also learn sorry to, I, I did also learn a very interesting lesson that week. I played with Ben Curtis in the one of the practice rounds, and he would have shot I don't know eighty five like he just hit it everywhere. And the following day, he was tied for the lead at six under. And I remember looking at that thing, and that was, you know, one of the things that that <clears throat> contributed to my philosophy on practice rounds was like they just don't matter, they really don't, you know. So what if you hit fifteen shanks? Hit them on a hit them on a Wednesday because statistically you're not going to hit them on a Thursday. <laughs> I love that. What course was the British Open at that you played? Uh, it was at Turnbury. So that was uh, the year where Stuart Sink beat Tom Watson in the playoff. That's a great golf course too, that one. I love that place. <laughs> was it as hard as you expected or was it harder? Course setup was actually easier. Uh, I was lucky enough to play the British Am the previous year was at Turnbury. And we British Am's usually like middle, end of June around that time. And... The weather was like cold and rainy, and the grass was thick, like three foot thick, left and right of the fairways. It like it's a tough, tough golf course, and um, and so I played it in those conditions. Then to come to the British Open a month later, like figuring out why it's always the third week in July is because typically third week in July is the best time of year, particularly you get up into Scotland, and and it was sunny. And it was probably 65 degrees. And because of all the stands and the people, right, which we didn't have at the, at the British Am, all the, all the long grass was like trampled down in a lot of places. So there were shots there. Like guys, I, I was lucky enough, I played with Matt Kucha and Damien McGrain um, in those first two rounds. And I don't even remember if it was me or those guys, but, you know, sprayed the ball a couple of times. And we get out there and we find it because there's people there 
and they've you know stomped down all the grass so you can see the ball whereas in the amateur like it's just lost like you're not finding it it's you know there's buried cars in there kind of kind of stuff but with the tournament it it opens up a little bit more so in that regard i thought wow it's a lot easier and i don't mean to say it was easy because it's definitely not easy um it's just that it's the difference between a professional and an amateur tournament you know certain logistics where you just can't have that that cabbage going around next to the fairways because speed of play and the infrastructure of getting people in and out uh, but often it's much better to be 30 yards offline than five that's a cool experience to have um, and i got two questions left and you said you're a sentimental guy one of the things that is always cool to learn about your guests is what their favorite memory of a golf tournament is you've played in a lot of stuff you've had a lot of up and downs what's your favorite memory of a golf tournament well wait that's a tough one um i may have to go with i may have to go with two what the first one is the qualifying that i did for the british open which i did at the international qualifier in singapore they timed it in with the asian tour and um it's a funny story they at least i think so um Sentosa golf course, the Serapon course, it's awesome. They played Singapore Open there a bunch. Um, you would have seen it on Golf Channel when they did the European Tour co-sanctions there. And um, played really good. I remember on the second day, I chipped in on the 13th and I just remember thinking, this is the day where things go right for me. Like, this is, this is going good. And uh, so I was like four under at that point and it's a tough track. And got to I bogeyed 16 no no sorry I bogeyed 17 and then I with sandwich in my hand on 18 which is a par five I like was so nervous I could barely feel my hands and I like blocked this sandwich into the bunker didn't get up and down made six finished two under total and like three under was going to get in and i was i was devastated i was like this is idiot just you know all of the things that we tell ourselves when it goes poorly so i I, in my frustration i went back to the clubhouse start packing my bags i'm like on my way back to my accommodation staying with some family friends and i get about 20 minutes down the road maybe not 20 minutes maybe 10 minutes and one of my good friends calls me he's like where are you? And I was like, oh, I'm headed back to the hotel. He's like, you idiot, you're in a playoff. Get back here now. And I was like, holy, just, so I, I tell his cab driver, turn around. We got to stop. I got to get my golf clothes back on. And so I'm like getting changed in the back of this cab. And he drives me, the way it is at Sarah, at Sentosa is the course, like you got to drive to the other golf course. So I got the cab driver to drive like literally to the back of the, of the tee. And there was nine guys at two under playing for one spot. And so I get to the back of the tee. I'm in the third group off, like straight on the tee out of the car. Like my luggage, I just dumped. And so we, we go, we play. I hold like a 15 footer for birdie on the 10th. And it was just me and one other guy, Danny Chia, uh, a Malay guy, nice guy. And, uh, then we got to, so then we, so it's just two of us. And then we go to 18. So it's a long par five, like, you know, 580 water all the way up the left, kind of dog legs around, or not dog legs, but wraps around the water. He hooks it in the water. 
And I'm like, all right, well, you just can't go left. <laughs> so, so I get one up in the fairway, um, lay it up and get it on the green there. Like, I don't know, 30 feet away. Just like he, he's probably going to make seven. I'm like, all right, you got, <laughs> you got three parts to get this done. And, uh, yeah, ended up, I did end up three putting to make tough for six to get, to get through, but I got that ninth spot. I don't think, I think, you know, I've been nervous in my time, but that was the most. So I, I think that definitely deserves one of the awards for most notable golf memory um, to get through the nine-way playoff uh, and the power of the mind. Um, <clears throat> the other one was uh, I, I'd never won a four-round professional event um, until 2018. And... I was actually in Tahiti with my now wife. She was caddying for me and um, was uh, knew that okay, I can win this tournament. I'm a, I'm a good player. I was, you know, and and uh, had a bad third day. Went into the last day just like you got to play really good. Got to play really good, and just went out and played. Um, you know, I was like four under through eight holes. Played great, and to to win that, obviously with her there, and just all of the, you know, it's not a huge tournament, but it, it, you know, having never done it as a pro, after all of the stuff as an amateur was, uh, you know, very, very satisfying, for sure. So I'd probably put that one even. I mean, the amateur stuff was great memories, but ignorance is bliss too. You know, once you know all the other stuff, it's like to get across that hurdle was very satisfying. Both of those stories are crazy and beautiful at the same time. <laughs> um, so the final question that we ask all of our guests is now you're older, you're smarter, you know a little bit more and ostensibly you have the keys to the kingdom. If you go back to yourself as a junior golfer and tell yourself just one thing, what would that one thing be? Uh, learn to listen to people. <laughs> probably um as a junior golfer um i would say learn to listen to people as a life lesson but also i think from a golf standpoint hit it as far as you can and then figure it out well you hit a long you hit it a long way uh right now is that something you've worked into your game um it's gotten better but I think it's interesting. I think I just gotten more efficient. Uh, like my club head speed when I was like 16 was like 116, 117. And I'm not, I don't think I'm there now, at least not on the range, maybe on course at times, but, but I think I'm a lot more efficient. So I'm kind of, I'm much better at getting the most out of, of where I'm at. It's probably something that, I mean, it's, it's all over, you know, golf media and, 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 you know, everyone says, got to hit it far, got to hit it far, got to hit it far. You don't have to. It just makes it a little bit easier. But you still need to be straight too, right? So it's not not giving that up. And I think one thing I notice a lot is none of the top guys play in their top gear. You know, I watched a video the other day of Matsuyama with his swing speed like 131. And, I mean, he doesn't his stats on the PGA Tour show that that's not what that is, right? And like Tony Finau can do like a 140 and he's playing at like 126. 
So it just puts some perspective in like, okay, push your max so that you can play at three quarters all the time because you still need to get it in the fairway, get it in the green, like take care of those sort of basic stats to a degree, um, but know that there's extra gears there if and when you may need them or want them. That makes sense. Well, wrapping up here, tell us where people could find you on social media or something like that if they want to reach out to you. Um, and also, I know you have a few sponsors. Tell us about your sponsors if you want to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have been very fortunate to uh, to become an ambassador for Greenboom. It's an environmental um, oil cleanup product and company working on various uh, eco technologies. And um, they've been they've been amazing in terms of uh, helping me, and also, you know, helping the environment. It's something that it's uh, growing up in Australia. Obviously, after seeing or growing up in Asia and seeing the waterways there, and then growing up after that in Australia, going to the beach a lot, you know, it's it is something that that I feel is important to keep keep some focus on and and playing a lot in Asia and seeing waterways full of all kinds of plastics and terrible things. It's it's great to be associated with a company that's working on you know helping somewhat and and kind of push the industry in that direction. Um, in terms of my social media, um, it's just Tim Stewart Golf, whether it's Instagram, Twitter, I'm not the best at Twitter, find it's a tricky place, environment to live in sometimes. Um, uh, or my Facebook, which is T Stewart Golf, um, which is my kind of athlete page per se. If they're golfers or athletes, then that's my athlete page. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. Please do us a big favor and like and subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts so we can help others learn how to play better tournament golf. You can find us online at thetournamentcode.com, on Instagram at thetournamentcode, and on Twitter at tournamentcode. As always, feel free to reach out to us at those places or email us at daniel at thetournamentcode.com and cooper at thetournamentcode.com. We hope you join us as we continue to dive deeper into what it takes to play elite tournament golf.